1: Welcome to today's episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom, and we'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Takeda Oncology, for their support of Myeloma Crowd Radio and this particular show. Now, with the COVID-19 pandemic ruling our lives these days, uh, I thought it was best if we stay in tune with expert opinion about the latest findings on the coronavirus and how myeloma patients should be reacting. In this show, Dr. Ola Landgren of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center will be sharing how he has treated myeloma patients who are both COVID-19 positive and negative and what he's finding in New York City, one of the key COVID-19 hotspots. The requirement... Of his and other New York City facilities, um, it's been extraordinary, and there's much to be learned from the head of the Myeloma Center at such an esteemed institution. Now, at the end of our show, we'll be opening up for questions around 10 or 15 minutes um, before the show ends, and just a quick comment about that. We'll likely have many questions, and we want to get to everyone, so I will invite you to ask just one question. And after you ask your question, I'll um, be muting every caller so Dr. Langren can answer the question, and then we can move forward to get to everyone's questions. So, Dr. Langren, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Jenny. It's really a great honor and a pleasure being on your show. Thank you.
1: And it's been far too long since we've had you on. So we're excited to have you. Um, before we get started, let me uh, introduce you. Um, Dr. C. Ola Langren is Chief of the Myeloma Service and attending physician at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. Dr. Langren is also Professor of Medicine at the Weill Cornell Medical College in New York. Dr. Langren is a member of the International Myeloma Working Group, a board member NCI representative on the steering, Myeloma Steering Committee, a lead for the Hematologic Malignancies Program of the NIH Clinical Investigations Branch. A member of the Association of Medical Research Charities Peer Review, a panel member of Myeloma UK, board member of the CCR Clinical Research Strategies Planning Committee, and chairman of the Scientific Review Committee for Clinical Trial Development at the NIH. Dr. Langren was formerly with the NIH prior to his Memorial Sloan Kettering appointment and is originally from Sweden. And Dr. Langren performs significant research in myeloma on a variety of topics, including immunotherapy, MRD testing. Precursor conditions and the development of many, many new clinical trials to advance the field for myeloma patients. He's also the recipient of multiple grant awards, including a prestigious R01 grant. So, Dr. Langren, um, we have a lot to talk about, and this COVID 19 thing has really rocked everybody's world. Um, maybe you want to share the experience that you've had because now you've you've been in this hot spot treating many patients, a lot of whom are COVID positive that have myeloma. Do you just want to share what you've learned?
0: Yeah, I'm happy to share with you. Uh, let's start with some of the high points. So, uh, I believe New York State, uh, when we do this recording, the 13th of April of 2020, has almost almost 200,000 cases with COVID. And I think, unfortunately, there are more than 10,000 deaths in the state. Many of these Mm. cases uh, are here in the city, and it's really very sad. Um, I think uh, back, uh, when did we really start to realize uh, the magnitude of this problem here in New York City? I think we started realizing this, really talking about it among the physicians for real, probably say one and a half or two months ago, we started realizing that this is probably gonna come here. I think we kind of all knew that earlier in the year, but I think there was like some kind of delayed processing, maybe it won't come here. But about two months ago, people started talking that this is really gonna come here. And about a month ago or so, uh, we formally made uh, decisions to start reprogramming our entire institution. Uh, I was assigned uh, about uh, three and a half weeks ago as one of the leaders for a in-COVID team. Uh, and another doctor was assigned being the solid tumor COVID team lead. And a third doctor was assigned as the transplant COVID team lead. This is how we started off uh, for the inpatient service. Uh, for the outpatient service, for every single disease area that we cover. And we are a cancer center that only do cancer. We are one of the two largest cancer centers in the United States. So MD Anderson is long catering, number one, number two, whoever is one and two, leading Mm -hmm. cancer centers with only focus on cancer. So we started reprogramming all the uh, outpatient care to telemedicine. Mm -hmm. So what we have done during these weeks is that we have – We have ramped up the inpatient service to take, in my case, patients who came in with any blood disorder with COVID positivity. And as we have moved forward in this time window I'm outlining here, we have been forced to open up additional uh, COVID team services. So we have more than the one that we started off with. We now have four of them in the hospital, and we have more than that for solid tumors uh all the outpatient care has been converted more or less to telemedicine. We have done a lot of adjustments uh, for the treatments, for the management of the different diseases. So for myeloma, including that, we have done very many changes. And I'm happy to talk uh, about exactly what we have done and share our experience.
1: Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I'd be very interested. Let's talk about that now while we're thinking about it.
0: Well, so for myeloma, uh, we started uh, thinking uh, through every single uh, indication that we have patients in early on. Uh, So when we turned the whole outpatient program to telemedicine, more or less, we we made decisions that we will continue to use combination therapies. We continue to use both intravenous and subcutaneous drugs. We continue to use uh, oral drugs. Uh, we had as a plan that we will uh, try to minimize the encounters for the individual patients. So, could patient come once a week instead of twice a week for infusions? That would be one encounter mm-hmm. less to try to stay away from the virus. If patients could be treated uh, once a month instead of twice a month, for example, same thing. For patients on oral regimens, uh, Instead of doing lab tests once a month, if that's what uh, we used to do before COVID-19, we try to string that out to have, say, three or so months interval. So these are like very simple principles on how we try mm-hmm. to reduce the number of uh, visits for patients. When we looked at the overall program for, for example, newly diagnosed patients, we, we had a lot of discussions and we were very fast trying to come up with practical uh, guidelines internally, all the faculty were behind these. We made immediately the decision to stay away from all the stem cell uh, collection, uh, to stay away from all the bone marrow transplant. We did not want to expose people uh, to extended immunosuppression because that would impose a major risk to these patients, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, That being said, for a newly diagnosed patient who is younger, Myeloma, obviously, is a real uh, threat, so you couldn't just ignore the disease uh, and just focus on staying away from the virus. You still have to move forward with that. So we, we institute a very hands-on uh, procedures for how to have a very transparent discussion on what the goal of care So having a discussion with each and every patient, between the doctor and the patient, What's the goal of the care? If you want to go after myeloma, there will be some risks with the virus, but the risks have to be handled uh, in balance with the, the risk of the, my, the myeloma. So I think we have uh, continued to give high-efficacy therapy for the majority of our newly diagnosed patients. Most patients are motivated to do that. We are set out to do that. We have converted it to uh, once-a-week dosing across the board. We have uh, bundled the blood tests uh, with the visits for infusions. So, for example, if a patient comes for an infusion uh, day one, day eight, day 15, once a week for three weeks on, that third week, the third dose, that's the day we would draw the myeloma labs. There would not be any extra visit to come for labs. It would be that same time. And then we would use those results and make decisions for the next cycle. And we have uh, discussed and argued uh, we were, have been in agreement early on that using good drugs up front uh, would be also a way to uh, hold off with the stem cell collection and stem cell transplant. Uh, so we have given, uh, which is part of our standard default here in New York, uh, we have used the once a week KOD regimen for most of our newly diagnosed patients. For patients that uh, or weaker, who we cannot tolerate these therapies, uh, we have used once a week to VRD regimen. And for patients who are uh, not candidates for these therapies, who are non-transplant patients in the future, we have done uh, either DRD with daratumumab revdex, or we have done just oral revdex, and in some rarer instances, we have done ixasme revdex. We have... Uh, been holding off bone marrows. So normally we would do six cycles of therapy and then determine MOD status. Right now mm-hmm. uh, we have given these newly diagnosed patients six cycles as the default. So that would be 18 infusions. Uh, and then we have uh, checked the blood work. We have been in close contact with the patients with telemedicine. medicine. And uh, instead of doing a bone marrow to confirm MOD status, we have looked to see if the protein's would go down to zero. Then we have had a mm-hmm. conversation again with the patient, and then as a default gone to maintain a 10 milligrams reblamine three weeks on one week off. The patients who are relapsed, we also have been holding off on uh, regimens that usually are given twice a week. We have given them once a week. If we have given valcade-based or cofilzomib-based uh, therapies, it has... Across the board, being once a week, mm-hmm. we have used the proteasome inhibitors with the uh, antibody dorsalex uh, We have used it in combination with both pomalyst and limit. It has gone actually very well. If I go look across the board, these therapies have worked out very well. We have tried to stay away from. Uh, old-school chemotherapy, not only the transplant with melphalan, but also like DCEP and VTD-PACE or VD-PACE for multiple reasons. One is that it can, uh, of course, induce uh, sustained immunosuppression uh, for the individual patient, but also most of these regimens many times uh, result in in need for blood and platelet transfusions. And there's a shortage of blood and platelet transfusions. Uh, in Hmm. the United States at this time. So we have been very cognizant of that. So if we could use outpatient regimens, we have have done that uh, by default. So these are like some very basic principles. But I think what I'm sharing with you here between the lines is that the same drugs that we would use before the virus, we still use. Uh, It works very well. Uh, We have not really seen a high rate of COVID in our patients. We are not. For a uh, center of our size in 2019, we have more than 10,000 myeloma visits at Long Kettering. More than 10,000 wow. visits. Uh, at this time, I do think we have uh, less than 30, 40 patients that have been positive with the virus, which is remarkable. Yeah, uh, totally. And I cannot... I cannot say that uh, the outcome of our patients with myeloma, uh, on a statistical note, is drastically different. I I can just not give that message right now. I know there are a lot of other groups around the world. Uh, I follow the news. I follow the Internet. Uh, I talk to a lot of friends and colleagues around the world I know there are places in 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 Europe, for example, where the situation is quite different. But uh, this is what we see here in the in, in in the city of New York.
1: Well, I think that's pretty amazing news, considering how concentrated it's been in New York. And um, there's been such an amazing effort by everyone in healthcare in New York. It's truly stunning what you all have been able to accomplish. So I congratulate you for. For doing that, um, let's talk about these 30 to 40 patients that you're that you've seen. Um, and sometimes when you hear about comorbidity status for COVID-19, you hear about the prior lung issues, you hear about prior diabetes, you hear about prior heart conditions. Um, are you seeing that independently as being consistent with what everybody else is seeing? Or is myeloma adding another layer to that risk, I guess?
0: First of all, I would like to say that today is April 13, 2020, so it's a moving target. We may see Mm -hmm. other things as we go forward. So everything is currently probably subject to change as needed here. But at the current time, if I look through what we have seen, and I mentioned here I've been responsible for the first launching of a COVID-positive heme service at Lone Kettering, right. and now we have additional of them. So we have four active uh, services going. But we were there from the very beginning, and we have seen patients coming to our service both with myeloma, with leukemia, and lymphoma. Uh, so we have some broader understanding of all the blood disorders uh, in a setting of COVID, uh, and also we know for all our patients uh, that we treat for myeloma that are not COVID positive, which obviously the majority of our patients I mentioned, I don't really have a feeling that the myeloma patients stick out. They do not from what mm-hmm. we see. Uh, uh, there, is, there is no signal from what we have right now that there should be some obvious other risk factor. Uh, I think uh, there are a lot of things that I've been thinking about that I don't have evidence to really prove. Uh, So one thing I think is potentially an explanation why we have a better outcome than uh, I've seen in other parts of the world. I think we have been very, very, uh, very cautious. We have really tried to have our patients staying at home. We have not had them coming in for unnecessary visits. Mm -hmm. We immediately switched the program to telemedicine. In 48 hours from the decision was made, we all had telemedicine. Uh, Sloan Kettering has 20,000 employees. Uh, In 48 hours, we all had uh, access. All the doctors had um, access. The hospital made a decision right away. They implemented... uh, upfront testing of all the patients in the emergency room. So if patients came to our emergency room, before they moved anywhere into, further into the hospital, they were tested, and they were assumed to be positive if they had any of the suspected symptoms until otherwise proven. So if they were found to be positive, they went right to a COVID-positive floor, and that yeah. floor was only staffed by people who uh, are handling these patients. So there was no mixing, no mixing by mm-hmm. with patients, no mixing with with the uh, doctors and nurses and mid-level providers. So very, very clear lines uh, on on how these things would happen. And also, when patients have been sent home, uh, we very early on established a office in the hospital staff 24/7, where patients were discharged with. COVID diagnosis or being called every day by nurses that are stationed. They are redeployed into this office to keep Mm. track and make sure that everyone is safe and doing fine. So I think the front end, the back end and the whole process in the middle has been rolled out very fast and I think that has been one of the success factors that they really took to grip right away. It was like no waiting or back and forth, just rolled out right away.
1: Well, the management has been totally stunning, it sounds like. Yes. I mean, just it's unbelievable because you could have cycled for three weeks working through red tape or whatever to get some of those programs in place, and that would have impacted people's lives. So that's truly amazing.
0: So I do think that the, the rapidity of the response within the organization and the um, the kind of thoughtfulness to look for all the things that needed to be taken care of and then act very fast Uh, was very impressive. So I mentioned when we started off three and a half weeks ago, we had never done this before. Uh, We were wondering, do we really have to have doctors and nurses and MPs going in to see all the patients and examine them? That doesn't Mm -hmm. sound right. So of course, we didn't want to do it that way. So within this 48 hour window, hospital implemented iPads, so the team could round and have iPads and talk to the patient who had his or her iPad. They had iPads everywhere. If you could talk to the patients from the hallway, you could still see each other. If someone had to go in, you had to go in, but if you don't have to, that's one less exposure. Uh, And uh, all these different measures trying to avoid unnecessary uh, encounters uh, have been rolled out. So I think in every kind of little aspect, uh, there have been measures uh, of caution, and it happened very, very fast. And it was consistent throughout the whole organization. I think mm-hmm. that is part of the reason why, why, why the outcome looks the way it does. Mm-hmm.
1: Amazing. Amazing. Well, let's talk a little bit about actual treatments. So you're moving to weekly administrations, you're moving to oral, you're delaying stem cell transplant. Now that you're doing that or have done that for several weeks, what patterns are you seeing? Do you see any myeloma therapies making things worse or do you see any myeloma therapies making things better?
0: No, I really don't see any changes from what I'm used to. Uh, and being in this organization with very high volume, uh, I think we, we use, obviously, all the different drugs uh, every week, all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, going to weekly dosing, uh, going a little bit more towards oral uh, and completely holding off both collection of stem cells and giving transplants there's a little bit less of the aggressiveness but i think uh, one month into the game it, it looks very similar uh, mm-hmm. there's really no pattern there is no drug that uh, seems to be more dangerous than the other there is no drug that i can tell you is the is the better drug so we use all the drugs we use the three drug combinations for upfront we use pi image, steroid we use antibody uh, pi steroid we use Revlimid maintenance, all these work very, very well. Uh, We are trying to, as I said repeatedly, we are trying to minimize the number of encounters. Patients have all Mm -hmm. the masks when they come in. All the staff have masks. Even when a patient comes in to get chemotherapy, uh, we have have screens, uh, like iPad-like screens in the room. So if I have a patient tomorrow or I have throughout the week, I can see the patients uh, from the screen, but I don't have to go there and be uh, interacting face-to-face with the patient. We still see each other through the screen, but we, we don't have to have that face-to-face uh, encounter. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So important. Let me ask some specific questions, too, about, like, the steroids. Have you seen any difference between patients? Have you lowered doses on steroids Do you see um, any more susceptibility to COVID-19 if a patient is on higher dose of steroids? Or uh, Let's just talk about different drug classes.
0: We have not seen any increased risks for patients uh, with 20 or 40 milligrams of dexamethasone having any different patterns for COVID. In general, we Mm -hmm. try to reduce dexamethasone we liberally decrease to 20 milligrams in a patient who cannot tolerate 40 milligrams. We don't see any prognostic difference or benefit with a higher dose. If a mm-hmm. patient cannot tolerate 20, we would liberally, if you use 4-milligram tablets, go down to either 12 or 8 milligrams on a weekly basis. But that's more for toxicity in general. But there is no mm-hmm. pattern for the virus as far as we have seen.
1: Okay, so you're not making any changes there. And what about the no. immunomodulators? Um, is like a Revlimid or a Pomalist. Um Are patients who are in the immunosuppressed zone having more trouble than others, or, or is it almost protective if it's at a lower dose and they're using it as maintenance? What are you seeing with that?
0: So just looking at high numbers of patients that we treat every day, uh, there is no pattern in our database that the, mm-hmm. the image uh, imposes a higher risk for COVID-19. We don't have that information. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at the mechanism of action, uh, the immunomodulatory drugs, for the most part, we don't really understand how they really work. We know that it blocks through myeloma cells, the IRF4, the NF-kappa-B pathway, so that's in the tumor cell, but also we know from, from pre- preclinical and uh, from clinical translational studies also that there's activation of T and natural killer cells, so-called NK cells. So you mm-hmm. probably have an activation on the cellular immune system with more of the T and NK cells and more active T and NK cells. So if anything, maybe the immune system is actually a little bit more active. That could help But Mm -hmm. we also know in some patients, these drugs, in parallel with what I just said, they are a little bit uh, bone marrow toxic. So some people tolerate them more than others. So some patients are a little bit susceptible. And you can see drops, for example, in the neutrophils. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, that would impose a slightly higher risk for typically a bacterial infection. Uh, And you obviously don't want to expose an individual uh, for for one infection that's unnecessary, and that could then lead to a co-infection with a virus, for example. So I think we pay close attention. Uh, we always do that. We, we follow very carefully the white cell count and the neutrophil counts. Uh, we, we don't like the absolute neutrophil count to go under 1.0 for sure. So we will mm-hmm. adjust uh, the dosing. Uh, these are relatively rare to see, uh, they are relatively rare to see, but there are some people that don't tolerate them so well. We would then dose reduce. With 10 milligram Revlimid, I would say that the majority of people tolerate that very well from the standpoint of, the, of all these aspects I'm outlining. Now, when it mm-hmm. comes to so, after, other side of the immune system, you have the humoral immune system. So you have the cellular immune system and you have the humoral immune system. So these are the two parts of the human immune system. So the cellular immune system is activated the T and the NK cells through the immunomolotoid drugs. If you have suppression a little bit of, of the marrow overall beyond suppression of the neutrophil cells, you potentially could also have a little bit suppression say of the humeral side with the IgG. And you could see also IgG suppression in other classes of drugs very commonly with daratumumab. But there is redundancy in the immune system so you have two major sites. So I think if one is lower and the other one is higher, Clinically, it doesn't seem to make a big difference, really. And we do not see increased risk of COVID 19, as I just said, from what we have seen.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I know a deratum can affect NK
0: cells, right? It can also suppress the humoral immune system with drops mm-hmm. of IgG. Uh, so that would be the other side, but it could also impact the, the NK cells as well, correct?
1: Hmm. Interesting. So you're not making any dosing changes necessarily. I know some no. people were thinking about: Are you extending
0: daratumumab
1: doses? Like, let's say you come in twice a month or something. Are you extending that to once a month? Or are you just maintaining?
0: We we are not doing any adjustments. There is no data uh, to guide for that. Mm-hmm. So the only mm-hmm. only things we are doing is to be very practical to minimize uh, the exposure. Uh, mm-hmm. Meaning that every every exposure could potentially Resulting uh, that the patient could contract the virus. So, the fewer of those, uh, the, few, the statistical risk goes down. That's the only principle we have. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we actually oh, had a call, we have calls mm-hmm. early in the mornings when we talk about uh, a lot of the, uh, both research and practical things. We had a call this morning at 8 o'clock with the leadership. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think we concluded that there are very many uh, guidelines out there, but none of mm-hmm. them are really based on data. Uh, mm-hmm. So our take is that for the use of drugs to go after the virus or try to improve patients' outcome who have the virus, that clinical trials are preferred over... Uh, empirical utility. There is no data to prove that any of these uh, therapies that are uh, proposed on the internet and elsewhere really work. And mm-hmm. So trials, so we prefer over empirical. And there are, I think there are more than 100 so-called guidelines uh, and none of them are based on high number data. So they are written by people who just like to write guidelines and there are a lot of those mm-hmm. people out there. Some people have yeah. made a career writing guidelines without mm-hmm. any data. So we're not going to mm-hmm. contribute to
1: that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to see the real numbers behind it. Well, what you're seeing so far is incredibly hopeful. I think for my Luma patients who are really concerned that being on therapy right now, this makes me feel uh, uh, like breathing a sigh of relief because if I'm on a current therapy, I can stay in my current therapy. I don't have to worry about my 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 myeloma growing out of control because I'm not getting treatment. So what you're saying is very relieving, I think, for patients. Um, for the patients that you've treated that are COVID positive, I know now clinical trials are open to test all these different types of things like tocilizumab or, um, you know, antivir- different antivirals. I know Selenexor just opened a COVID-19 study because they found it was partially um, antiviral and could suppress some of the cytokine storm. Um, do you want to talk about any particular therapies that you've given to COVID-positive patients that have myeloma? And um, you mentioned you know, using them in a clinical trial. So I don't really understand the trial landscape for those types of studies, so maybe you want to review, review what's happening there.
0: Yeah, so I think, uh, I think it's important to emphasize right now that there is not yet any treatment for people who have COVID-19 that has been proven to be the breakthrough regimen that should be given that could either prevent or uh, alleviate symptoms or shorten uh, the healthcare. Uh, duration in the hospital. None of those endpoints have been proven for any uh, drug uh, at this time, unfortunately. We are hoping that could Mm -hmm. be a vaccine that could prevent the virus. We are hoping that could be treatment that could help and cool off the infection in those patients, the small proportion of patients who get very sick from the virus. There are a lot of uh, drugs that have been tested, and I think the first ones have been everywhere on the Internet and in different other settings, the hydrochloroquine, uh, with and without mm-hmm. uh, Right. At this point, I would say we don't know. Uh, there are attempts trying to use steroids for patients who have more severe impact on the virus to see if that could cool off the immune uh, reaction. Again, we don't know. Uh, There are IL-6 inhibitors. We don't know. You mentioned selenexor. We don't know. There are proteasome inhibitors. We don't know. Uh, There is also serum from people who have contracted the infection and you're collecting the serum and see if that could be given as a medicine for people uh, with the infection and see if that could help. We don't know. So there are a lot of things we don't know. So I think what we really need right now uh, is to to do these studies, to do them fast and figure out what really works. Uh, right now, it's a lot of uh, anecdotal uh, uh, empirical use. Uh, but people are, of course, frustrated when you're treating uh, when you're a doctor, you treat the patient who is very sick. Of course, it's very, very stressful and, uh, and you try to do your best. So I'm not saying that we not use clinical best judgment. That's the best we can do in difficult situations. But I think to use that and say that this is not what everyone else should do. That's not right because Mm -hmm. we are still trying to figure out what the right thing is to do in kind of older strokes.
1: So are there clinical trials that are open at Memorial Sloan Kettering for some of these COVID treatments?
0: we do have uh, some of these uh, drugs I mentioned uh, in, uh, in trial for treatment. And this is true across uh, the board in, in the city here and across the United States and internationally as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I had a question about what we were talking about earlier in terms of limiting contact. Has, has any facility, including yours, been able to do any kind of home infusions? Um, I know that's that would change a lot with insurance coverage and and you'd have to you know create new teams of people to go do home infusions but has that ever been considered
0: so i cannot speak for other institutions i don't know exactly what they have done and if there are already programs going or not that i do not know uh, at our institutions, we at our institution, we do not have that. Uh, what we have done is to have fewer uh, visits, as I mentioned mm-hmm. multiple times. Uh, try to minimize all the invasive uh, visits. No blood tests uh, like every week or every month. Do it less often if it can. It minimize all the biopsies and things like that. Minimize imaging. Uh, so mm-hmm. just fewer fewer visits. We have all the staff has uh, N95 masks. Uh, mm-hmm. All the patients have masks when they come. Uh, we have uh, very careful uh, uh, steps when people enter the buildings. Uh, they have to uh, to answer certain questions whether they have had any symptoms or so. so. We are trying to be just very, very, very careful. This includes yeah. both patients and staff.
1: Well, it sounds like it's working. And you mentioned earlier about MRD testing, and I would assume that's something that you're going to space out a little bit further because that's a bone marrow, um, or other reasons that you need to get a bone marrow biopsy might be spaced out a little more.
0: Correct. So the bone marrow-based assays right now, uh, we, we have the ability to do them. We can do them. Uh, we can do we can do anything uh, that we normally would do, but we are holding off on things that really we don't have to do. So imaging and bone marrow biopsies, is, unless they're critical, uh, we would not do. Uh, mm-hmm. And therefore, we don't do the MOD testing there. We have filed in New York State. Uh, there is the so-called NAS spec, the MOLD testing. So mm-hmm. there are two platforms out there. There is uh, one uh, platform that, the one that I think is going to, be the one that's gonna go forward around the world, developed by the binding site in the UK. Uh, we have that set up, we have it fully operational. We are waiting for New York State to sign off on it. Uh, Mayo Clinic has developed their own local assay. They are also, I think, running that right now. But we have the, uh, the binding site assay. And uh, as soon as that gets signed off, we will uh, start using that as the standard of care. So any person who will do blood work Uh, as long catering uh, with a diagnosis of myeloma. That test would be done as a default, and it takes 10 microliters of serum. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are also trying to develop our – we just published, it came out online last week, our immunopet imaging where we have radio-labeled antibodies uh, for Mm -hmm. PET-CT. So we now have antibodies that we can inject uh, less than a – 1% 1% of a single dose of daratumumab, so very small volumes, and we can then see where the antibodies land and we can see if there is residual disease. These are things we are trying to develop. Wow. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, we just published it, came out in the Journal Radiology, uh, mm-hmm. and we have uh, and we just got an or, another R01 grant for the extension of, of a new uh, uh, expansion phase for a large phase two study. Where we're going to compare bone marrow based with blood based with this new immunopet. It looks really, really uh, promising. You can take pictures and see if there are residual myeloma cells. Oh, wow! I think that imaging amazing. and the bone marrow tests are in development. Uh, the, the blood work is in development. So today, uh, April 13, we hold off on on unnecessary things but as soon as New York State signs off on the blood test, that will be implemented day one. And when the COVID has cooled off, we will move forward with the the bone marrow and the new immunopath.
1: Well, we'll make sure to cover that on the myeloma crowd site to give patients a little more detail about what that is. And that's exciting, very exciting. Um, A few more questions. So What's the status of current clinical trials? I know we're awaiting several approvals this year, like uh, the CAR-T for BB2121 and um, the GSK, antibody drug conjugate, and others. Um, What's happening on those that look like they're about to be approved? And then what's happening on other clinical trials in myeloma in general?
0: From all I know, the FDA uh, is moving very fast forward. I I do think they do a fantastic job. Uh, mm-hmm. They are reviewing all the data they have been provided. Uh, I work with them uh, quite a lot on the different types of projects. Uh, we had a phone call just the other week, and they were like working full speed on all these things we are collaborating on. I assume that all the, uh, the data they have received for these uh, drugs that are expected to be approved soon, I think that is probably on track. Uh, I think for the trials that are still collecting data that then will go to the FDA, I would project that could be some unfortunate delays because the data may not be ready to be submitted. There could be some glitches or that could be need for some cleanup or things like that. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think that's probably... It could happen for some trials, but many of them are already completed for the purpose of collection of data. For example, subcutaneous now is with the FDA. I think they hopefully will sign off within a month or one two months or so from now so will be my guesstimate. We will see what the FDA does. Uh, I think for um, trials that are ongoing, uh, if I look at our institution, all the trials that are company-sponsored. Unless the company stops them, we still have them open, but for myeloma, we are only offering patients to enroll if we don't think there is another uh, better, good or better option. Uh, So, if it's something that the patient is considering, but that could be another option, uh, given the COVID setting, we, we would probably hold back till it cools off a little bit just for safety and for general kind of management purposes. Uh, but we still have them open. Uh, mm-hmm. As soon as uh, we will reopen the city, and we had, again, this morning, this 8 o'clock call, we talked about what the next steps are for opening up New York City, opening up some catering and all the other institutions. When we start rolling back, uh, we're going to roll out uh, one of the the top uh, items we've we discussed here is like to roll out our clinical trials and we, we also concluded today actually that we have learned uh, to run a lot of the trials through telemedicine so I think the research could come out stronger mm-hmm. patients probably could be monitored through telemedicine and I think we probably could have an outreach that could even go outside New York City, we could probably go across the United States uh, for research uh, monitoring of patients here so uh, when we are through this, I think uh, I think we can come back stronger uh, with research that 's what I, what I feel right now
1: mm-hmm. well you look at you yeah you really have to look at how you change um, your approach, and sometimes those are blessings. They can turn out to be a blessing yeah. Uh, yeah. Let me also ask, ask you about. Um, the portable tests so a lot of the portable tests are coming out there are the blood prick tests Um, and I think patients might have a lot of questions about these maybe you want to describe what they are and then um, if patients can get access to them should they use them and then if they because yeah maybe first you want to explain what the test is and does
0: so first of all, I I want to make sure when it comes to that particular question that I'm not a test expert and I I have no mm-hmm. personal uh, interest in, in any test. Or I have no conflict of interest. Uh, I'm quote just a, a regular doctor here. I'm trying to help mm-hmm. help patients. Uh, so I when I look at all these things, I I wonder uh, how can we test people. Uh, as fast as possible uh, in, in an optimal, as optimal way as possible. Uh, I think uh, if we have a, a reliable test, uh, I think that is probably more important than just having access to a test. And the reason I think that's important is because if you do some back of envelope map, say that uh, the infection uh, happens in, just make up a number, say 5% of the population, if the test uh, is only right in say 95% of the cases, which you could think it's a a pretty good number, that means that there will be 5% of those positive people uh, that will be told that they never had the infection. You could argue that that's not maybe as bad of a deal because if you're positive, you think you're immune and there will be 5% that will be told that they they didn't have it and they would still have to be, be cautious. So I think the real drawback is the group of people uh, that actually didn't have the infection, but these tests are giving false positive tests. Mm -hmm. So again, if it's only 5% that actually had the infection, that is the number. I'm not saying that is the number, but let's make that assumption. That means that 95% didn't have it. That's the majority of people. So if there are a lot of false positive in that group, that would be people uh, with such a test of being told, oh, you had the infection, and they would think, oh, I'm immune, and that's a false uh, false positive test. So, in the setting of a low prevalence, there will be more people giving a, given a false positive. If the infection has a much higher prevalence, if, say, 50% of people had it, uh, it's still a high proportion of people that will be given a false positive test. If the, if the prevalence is 90%, which I don't think it is, but let's say if it were to be that, then the false positive group would be smaller. So these are just like simple uh, examples of uh, how different tests could impact uh, people's kind of uh, perception, whether they are immune or not. Mm-hmm. I do think uh, we need to have we need to have good tests with very high accuracy. Uh, We certainly need to to test people. Ideally, we test the whole population to see who actually had it. But I really don't know how to maneuver where we are until the test or better. I think it's a problem that we will tell people uh, that they had infection, although it's false positive. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and then if you... But if you even say, like, you have... So these little tests look like they have this IgM line, which means you maybe have an active infection, you need to go get further testing, an IgG line that shows that um, you may have had it already, so you have an antibody against it, and then this control line that shows you haven't had anything. So even if somebody says, I have had it, um, but they could might still be contagious, right? So...
0: Well, I think if you if you have these tests that show antibodies, because they are some of these tests are not specific for COVID-19, mm-hmm. they, they could show up positive if you had another infection. There are a lot of other coronaviruses that are around. They have been for years. Mm-hmm. So some of these tests would be positive if you had such a coronavirus. So that's an example uh, that fits with what I was just trying to say, that if a person right. were to do this test and this shows up positive, he or she would think, "Oh, I had a virus. I'm safe. I'm immune." But there's a false, uh, false positive signal here. And we, I can tell you, at our institution, we have currently looked through several of these tests. that We have done head-to-head comparisons, and we have been holding off. We don't really know what to make out of it. So we are still uh, basing all our monitoring on the sequencing-based tests that have their own drawbacks, so they require presence of the virus in real time, so you won't be able to see if someone had it before. So the sequencing based are only uh, possible to do in a person who carries the virus. We would ideally Mm -hmm. like to have a serologic test with antibodies, but right now I think there is still work to be done to identify the optimal antibody test. And there mm-hmm. may be tests that I'm not aware of, but we we are still looking.
1: Right. So it may give you a piece of information, but we maybe we we don't know fully until things get a little further along, and that the test can be used reliably and and all that. That's amazing. Well, wow. we there's a lot that we don't know, isn't there? <laughs>
0: There's certainly a lot we we don't know. Uh, When it comes to the testing, so what we started doing, uh, we started this on uh, Sunday night. The decision was made that we now have so high capacity of internal testing that we will now start testing the entire hospital. So uh, we tested until Saturday. We tested anyone who had any sign. Uh, including both uh, staff, uh, personnel of any kind, and patients who came into the hospital or developed symptoms in the hospital. But just this Sunday night, the decision was made to test every individual every, every 72 hours. So now we are testing every three days. Everyone is being tested. In order to see what is actually the true prevalence in people who don't have any symptoms, And what Mm -hmm. is also the incidence if there is an increase in the uptake? So I don't know the answer to this yet, but this is something that we have just started.
1: That's amazing. Well, we look forward to what you're learning. Well, I want to open it up for some caller questions, so we have some time for that. So if you have a question for Dr. Landgren, you can call 347-637-2631 and press 1 on your keypad and I'll um, have everyone ask a question. And then after you ask your question, um, I'll mute you so that we can continue asking the questions. Okay, so caller eight four seven five seven four eight, go ahead with your question. Hang on one second. It's not working. Hang on one second. Okay, caller 6757, go ahead with your question. It seems like the system is not working to allow me to... I'm allowing the caller questions, and they're just cycling. They're not doing anything. Okay, um, I know one of these questions is um, from Gary, and he emailed the question prior. So while we're waiting for the software to work, um, I'm going to ask his question for him if that's okay. So he said, um, he understood that COVID-19 blood tests were now 40%, New York COVID blood tests were now 40% positive. So what is that percentage in myeloma? And we talked about the outcome a little bit already. Um, and he also talked so about, question, yeah, that, was, that, well, the European versus the American experience, I guess, was part of his question.
0: So if I understand the first question, uh, you say that 40% of New York blood-based testing, does that refer to that 40% of the population may have contracted uh, the virus? Is that the statement or what the question
1: is? I think that's the the question. He he says, I understand New York COVID-19 blood tests are now 40% positive. But I don't know if that's true or not.
0: So I don't know. uh, I have not seen that uh, very number. So I don't know what the true prevalence is. I actually saw online uh, here very recently they have done a population screening in Iceland. Every place is different, obviously. But they have screened 5,500 individuals. And they found that in the population screening, uh, uh, they found about 1% of the people to have it. And they also, in Iceland, had screened almost 5,000 people in what they call high-risk individuals. And I'm not sure exactly how they define that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would assume it's people who work in healthcare or things like that. And the rate there uh, was 11.6%. Uh, uh, hmm. We uh, have tested our uh, people who have worked in our hospital, uh, and I think the numbers have been more in the range of about 5 or so percent The majority of all people who have been tested uh, now have recovered and come back to work, uh, tested negative. Uh, So I don't know. It seems to me that uh, if the the ratio between symptomatic and asymptomatic could even be 1 to 10, say that one person is symptomatic and the other 9 are asymptomatic for every 10 people who actually have the virus, maybe a 5% prevalence in a high-risk population, maybe that is equal to actually a true 50% prevalence of people uh, in that group, maybe, I don't know. But it seems very high, then that 40% of New York should have it. So right. I don't know, I'm questioning what is really the true prevalence. I would say that we actually don't know. So because mm-hmm. we don't know, uh, we cannot answer what the prevalence is in myeloma, and we don't know if it's higher or lower because we don't know what to compare with. So all these uh, questions that I don't have the answer to. There is no data really to guide at this time. But what right. I can say is that mm-hmm. we need more information. What I do uh, have the answer, and that's what I started off saying here, is that uh, about a month into the game here, uh, with uh, a lot of activity at our center, mm-hmm. my interpretation is that myeloma patients do not have, in New York at our institutions, so do not have a different prognosis. The patients we have seen who have come in with a virus, many of those patients have been there for three, four, five days and been discharged.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that's good news.
1: Great news. Uh, it's fantastic. There
0: are, some peop- there are some people, unfortunately, who have come in and being sicker. But that's true for the general population and that's true for other diseases as well. But what I can say is that it's not the majority or a high number of the myeloma patients who have had a lateral outcome. The majority of them have been similar to what we have seen in the general population.
1: Yeah, great. Um, well, let me ask one more question because my software seems like it's not working to allow caller questions. Um, it just mm-hmm. keeps cycling. Um, so what? where do we go from here? What do you see happening from here? I know you're having these preparatory meetings in terms of how to open things back up. Um, what? What can patients do that is the most effective thing? to protect themselves in addition to what you've already mentioned? What can their family members do? And then where do we go from here in myeloma care?
0: Well, I don't know if I have facts on top of what we have already discussed. I I think my answer is to basically reiterate what I said. Uh, Mm -hmm. Be careful, don't uh, just go back to normal tomorrow. I wish we could, but I think we have to be a little bit more cautious here I think the next step, based on what we know and what we have discussed here is to to have some form of a uh, plan going forward along the lines of opening up stepwise. So what we will do at our center we will reopen uh, for new visits and for patients who want to transfer care uh, mm-hmm. for a while we have been uh, been a little bit more Cautious on that too. We didn't want to have people coming over and making patients, existing patients sick, but we will start reopening that. We will uh, also continue to open up more of the existing clinical trials that we have and sort of evolving again because it's important that we move that forward. We will then uh, continue to have more and more patients coming for second opinions again. We know that a lot of patients that have been waiting and want to come, so we will start doing that. And uh, we, have, we have developed a four-step model. So the fourth step is to resume all the out- and inpatient activities and also to start opening new clinical trials. I wish I could tell you when the start date for the fourth step is. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't have that. But I can tell you that we are about to roll out probably in the coming two weeks or so. I think we will start rolling out the first step and then we will start seeing how things go and we monitor on a daily, hourly basis all these things. Uh, And if everything follows the plan, we will then go into the next step and then the next step and then the final step. But the if we see any signs of anything, we will we will put a, a break and we will reassess. So that's the best we okay. can do for now. I yeah.
1: so think oh, for yeah, patients, right.
0: wash your hands, uh, be careful, don't do unnecessary things. If you come in for treatment, have masks, try to minimize unnecessary things. There is no need for collection of stem cells or transplants. There is no need for biopsies or imaging uh, unless it's really needed. Uh, have uh, fewer uh, visits. Uh, That would be my advice. That's the recommendation for Sloan-Kathleen.
1: Okay, great. Um, Another question that was messaged to me is, are your COVID patients in active myeloma treatment, and are they uh, newly diagnosed myeloma patients or relapsed refractory patients, or both, who have tested COVID positive? And are you doing the convalescent plasma trial?
0: We are uh, having patients, because we don't have hundreds or thousands of patients, uh, we have, as I mentioned, like, say, 30 or so patients uh, in that range, 30 around patients, so it's not very many. But out of those individuals, uh, it would include people who were relatively recently newly diagnosed. We actually had one patient that transferred from one of the other hospitals who was newly diagnosed and came with kidney failure and myeloma uh, and we have had some patients who also few cycles uh, and then contracted the virus, but also patients who are relapsed or refractory. And so all the different spectrums. And yes, we do participate in this uh, study where we are collecting uh, serum from people who who have had uh, the infection.
1: Mm-hmm. And my last question is on telemedicine. I think you've seen something that we were talking about how uh, this really changes things. You have to operate in a different way, and you're doing all this wonderful telemedicine. You want to continue that for clinical trials in the future. Um, some, some restrictions have been opened up about crossing state lines to be able to do that. Do you think that will continue in a tool that you'll continue to use as things move forward, even post-COVID-19?
0: I think the technology would allow all of these things to happen. Uh, I think it's a lot uh, to do uh, when it comes to legal and reimbursement and the insurance companies. Right now, a lot of these uh, things have been approved overnight because there are no other Mm -hmm. options. So I think patients will also have to put uh, pressure uh, on the different stakeholders here. Uh, Together with the healthcare professionals, I think this is also a time where we actually can can get things uh, better access through telemedicine. I think it's a fantastic addition to uh, office visits. Office visits are great for very many things, but many things probably can be done uh, through telemedicine. So uh, I look uh, at this in a very positive way. I mentioned the research probably can benefit from it, but I think also uh, standard of care for sure. So I'm, I'm very mm-hmm. optimistic and I think this is, this, I think uh, this a terrible crisis. Uh, one thing it will kind of give us when everything is over is that it will give us a lot of new tools uh, and new opportunities. So I think we will come out of it stronger with, uh, with a lot of new positive ways to, to do things.
1: Well, I totally agree. And that's a great way to end the show. I think you can come through adversity stronger and smarter and doing things in new and different ways that you would have never considered before. So Dr. Langren, thank you so much for joining us and giving this, this this amazing update. It's really totally inspiring actually to know that as a myeloma patient I'm not necessarily at a huge higher risk and that I can get my treatment and I can visit with my doctor. So this show is a lot of good news and I think we've all needed a lot of good news, especially as we're stuck at home. So Thank you for taking the time in such a busy time for you. And we just really appreciate you and all you're doing.
0: Thank you very much for having me and thank you for everything you do. We will get through this together. And we will be stronger when we are through this.
1: Yeah, well, thank you again. And hang in there with all you have to do. So we thank um, Dr. Langren and thank you so much for calling in and listening to My Myeloma Crowd Radio. And we invite you to tune in next time to learn more about the latest in myeloma research and what it means for you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.